John 17, starting at verse 6. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Travis. This is Narrabeen Baptist Church. Hopefully you're on the right place today. Amen. Uh, if you have John 17, which was just read, uh, still open, keep it open. We're going to uh, stick uh, pretty closely to our text today. Um, let's jump into this. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, my grandma passed away. Uh, she was the first person I ever met who uh, ever told me uh, who Jesus was and showed me what the love of Jesus looked like. Uh, the rest of my family weren't interested in church, uh, but whenever I saw my grandma, she would remind me that there was a God who, in her words, is crazy about me. Uh, and when I became a Christian at 13 years of age, uh, she was the only person in my family who was excited, who I could talk to about my faith, who prayed for me every day. Uh, and her passing was a significant event for me. Um, about 10 years ago now, just after uh, my wife and I moved to Sydney, my parents informed me that there was a box of my old stuff that I wish, they wished I had taken with me in the move, um, including something that I never knew about before, which was a letter written from my grandmother to me in the days before her death. Uh, for 10 years, my parents had forgotten to notify me about this letter. Uh, and then, a year later, when I returned back to America for a wedding, I stopped by my parents' house to visit them and to pick up this letter. Um, 
After spending some time with them, I asked them if they could go and bring out this box of old stuff, including this letter from my grandma. And so my, my dad disappeared into the garage for a bit, and then he pulls out this box of old Star Wars toys and DVDs and photo albums and, and everything. And I start looking through it. There's no letter. Um, it might be in storage, they said. And they promised to get it out next time I was in town. Well, a little over a year ago, my parents moved from California up to Washington State. And I thought, well, this will be a good time to ask them, uh, since they probably had to go through all their stuff, go through all their storage, if this letter from my grandma had been located. They told me that they had looked everywhere, but believe it had been lost during the move. So for the past 20 years, there has existed uh, a letter written for me by someone who loved me through and through. Uh, those words on this lost letter, I'm guessing, would have contained encouragement and wisdom for the years ahead, a reminder of who I was and where I was heading. And every now and then, I think, how good would that have been to know for sure what her final words were for me? What prayer would she have prayed for me? And I wonder how different it would be having those words with me when she is not here to tell me herself. Well, we're in John 17 today, and these are Jesus' final moments with the ones that he loves. He has been their rabbi, their mentor, their life changer. And earlier, Jesus is sharing a meal with them, and he reminds them that they will not be left as orphans, but will be given his very spirit to be with them and in them. He tells them that they have a mission uh, to remain in him, to be fruitful and to be his ambassadors to this world in his absence. And now here, Jesus, in the presence of the ones that he loves, prays. And in our passage today, he specifically prays for those he is about to leave. Verses 6 to 19, which we just read, function similar to a letter that someone might write to you before they die. A letter, a prayer that tells you who you are and where you're heading. Uh, this is a letter to those people in uh, that room that night, to his followers that he's about to leave behind, to give them a direction, a clear pathway for the next season of their lives. But I don't think it was just meant for them. Uh, see, these reminders that Jesus leaves his closest followers then have wisdom for us now because we find ourselves in a similar position to them, people trying to follow Jesus without Jesus physically present with us. It's a letter for us, which should make us eager to find out what is in that letter. Well, there are three reminders Jesus leaves for his disciples here, and they are as follows. Number one, you are not divided but one. Secondly, you are not of the world but in it. And third, you are not swept away but set apart. You are not divided but one. You are not of the world but in it. And you are not swept away but set apart. These are all statements of who you are in Christ, but also prayers of where you and I ought to be heading. So let's dive into these three points. First of all, Jesus prays that we, his loved ones, would not be divided but one. If you have John 17, verse 11, look at the second half of that verse. Jesus says this, Holy Father, 
protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has talked about this kind of unity, this kind of oneness in John's gospel. Um, Up on the screen, uh, John 14, verse 10, Jesus tells the disciples this, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is, who is doing his work. Similarly, way back in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we are told this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John says in all these verses that Jesus and God are one. Perfect unity in which there is no hierarchy, no divisions, no secrets, no competing wills, no conflicting agendas, but rather unity of thought, will, purpose, and authority. Last week, we read about how the Son brings glory to the Father by doing the work that the Father sent him to do, and that the Father, in turn, glorifies the Son. Imagine having that sort of relationship with someone else where each person is perfectly loving, caring, putting the other person first, wanting to share the same passion, the same mission, the same purpose. And then in turn, by doing that for them, they do that for you. And it's just this cycle that goes on and on and on. When I think of that type of relationship, I'm like, sign me up. I want want a relationship with someone like that. And Jesus says that that same unity, that same oneness that he and God the Father share is something as followers of Christ that we can share with him and one another. So who are you? You're a member of God's family. You are a part of this thing where you can gather with people of completely different backgrounds, different experiences, from different stages of life, from different socioeconomic situations, who speak different languages, who have different colors of skin, from different parts of the planet, and say, these people are my people. And when we take these parting words seriously, it's an incredible thing. However, you may be aware that for many periods of the history of the church, we have not listened to this description of who we are. Rather, we've been rather disunified, disharmonious, pushing our own agendas, being more exclusive than inclusive. And it's why there are thousands of church denominations, and we constantly hear about churches splitting or shrinking And I think it's actually quite repulsive. And the world eats it up because that's how most people in the world live on a regular basis, striving and fighting and clawing for top spot and undermining and judging and categorizing and labeling and finger pointing. It's our natural human instinct at times. But here Jesus is saying that there is something powerful available to us, that in the church there's a different way because of the work of Jesus that same oneness that Jesus has with the Father, we can share with one another. Secondly, Jesus says, you are not of the world, but in it. Have a look again at John 17, verses 14 to 16. Um, It says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. When you come to know Jesus, it means the core of your identity has changed. Um, Your allegiance has shifted. 
What defines you and shapes you is entirely different. Before being included into the family of Jesus, we were in the world, which meant that its thoughts were our thoughts, its ways are our ways, its habits are our habits. But in Jesus, this is no longer the case. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. This is coming on the screen as well. Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as, and just as you have kept us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as, often, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, <clears throat> and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So what's Paul saying there? Well, he says that there are two types of people. There are people who belong to this world, this earth, whose purpose in life is to simply satisfy whatever raging desires that, and appetites that they have, and whose crowning achievements are actually things to be embarrassed about in light of eternity. But then, Paul says, there are those who belong to Christ, whose citizenship isn't to the northern beaches lifestyle anymore. It isn't to Australia anymore. It's not to the ways of this world anymore. But now we have switched sides. And what Paul here and Jesus in his prayer are saying is that unlike someone like me, who is both American and Aussie citizen, there's no such thing as being a dual citizen between the world and heaven. You can't be both. Which means that you ought to stop imitating everyone else around you so that you can live as ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Not so that by our actions we can be saved, but because we are saved. Because we are citizens of heaven, we have this firm promise in Jesus, and so we eagerly want to respond to this great truth by looking and living differently. And finally, Jesus says, we are not swept away, but, but set apart. In verses 11 and 15, Jesus prays for protection for his followers. Um, and he says that because their allegiance has shifted, it has meant that trouble and persecution are going to come. Nobody wants followers of Jesus to actually follow him because that means that they're going to be confronted with the hollowness of their lives without God in it. Jesus advocates for us. He knew then and he knows now that really taking his commands seriously is difficult work. And Hebrews 7.25 says that even now Jesus is interceding to God on our behalf. Paul in Romans 8 says that when we don't even know how to pray, the Spirit steps in and speaks for us. So whenever you think you're being swept away, we are to know that Jesus is never going to let us go. But not only are we not uh, able to be, not only are we not going to be swept away if we take this seriously, but Jesus prays that we will be set apart. Have a look again at John 17, verses 17 to 19. Jesus prays this. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. <clears throat> now that word sanctify there is not a word that we commonly use today. Um, it comes from the Greek word agiazo, 
uh, which is a fun word to say, uh, which literally means to make holy or to set apart. Now, whenever I think traditionally of the word holy uh, or sanctified, I think it means perfection, right? There's no blemish or sin. Everything is completely perfect. And although those things are implied in this word of being sanctified or set apart, um, what that word really means is to be altogether different, to be uncommon, to be strangely unique, that by who you are, by how you talk, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, your energy, that you are unlike most other people in this world. If someone followed you around for a week, they should be surprised by how you live. And not only does Jesus pray that we look different, but he says that we are set apart for a reason, with a mission. We are sent into this world as joy proclaimers and peace bringers and hope messengers, saying, we are changed and you can be too. So what does this mean for us? Where do we go from here? Well, if Jesus' prayer for you is that you are not divided but one, then we ought to find ourselves doing things that bring unity instead of division. Well, how do we do that? Three simple things. One, pray regularly for your church family. Seriously, each day we should be praying for our church as a whole and individuals within God's family, both in NBC and around the world. Each week, um, if you are part of the church email database, prayer requests get sent out to you. Every week, are you actually praying for those people? Do you actually do it? Do you actually read through those things and pray? When someone comes up to you and talks to you at deck time and says something, shares something that they're going through, instead of saying, I'll pray for you and then forget later on, which is what I often do, maybe you should just pray for them right then and there. Have you ever thought about that? Maintain a journal of how you can be praying for others. Um, Get on um, Operation World or Open Doors, these websites, um, about things that are going on around the world and how we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the planet. Make it a habit. Pray for those around you. Secondly, say, I want the way of Jesus in your relationships with others. So when someone posts something on Facebook that completely flies in the face of what you think is correct theology, if you said... I want the way of Jesus, how would, you respond, how would your response to that person change? If a brother or sister in Christ got on your nerves, maybe me, uh, <laughs> or did something that you thought was shady or deceitful or whatever, how would your reaction change if you first said, I want the way of Jesus for that person? My guess is that it would be drastically different. Third, serve instead of expect to be fed. If you gather on Sunday or in a community group thinking, man, I hope Travis preaches for under an hour today because I really got other important stuff to get to, or I hope that they don't sing any hymns this week, or I hope that the study tells me exactly what I want to hear, or I hope someone comes over and talks to me without me having to get up and talk to them, um, then all you're doing is inviting division into the church. I've been on that side of the church. You know, a grumpy spectator who instead of walking away closer to Christ and making new friends, I walk away with a chip on my shoulder, a shoulder and a hole in my heart. It's not healthy for the church, and it's certainly not healthy for you. We are one. We have the Spirit in us, so let's live that way. 
If Jesus' prayer is that we are not of the world, but in it, we ought to find ourselves doing more things like citizens of heaven would be doing, rather than citizens of the world. Examine your life. Is how you're spending your time, your money, your talents, bringing glory to God or yourself? Does your life look radically different from those around you? Do you find yourself caring for the poor, regularly sharing the gospel with your friends, being generous to those in need, inviting in your neighbors, welcoming those at church who you don't know, standing up for the oppressed, serving even though it's costly, spending more time in God's word than you do on Netflix, praying and seeking out God's will instead of scrolling through Instagram. If not, maybe we ought to think about where our citizenship lies and if we are actually interested in Jesus or just the things that Jesus offers us. Do we want to respond to this great truth that Jesus has changed our allegiance or are we just not interested? Finally, if Jesus' prayer is that we might not be swept away but set apart and sent, how are you standing firm in Jesus? In what ways are you pouring truth into your life? In the past few months, uh, I've been really challenged by this. So I've taken an hour each day, and sometimes I have to break it into smaller chunks if I have a lot on. And I spend time reading God's Word and praying. But I've also been listening to like all these podcasts, reading books on spiritual formation, and look into areas where I want to grow. I want to I continue to be more like Jesus and not just be swept away. Uh, for example, I'm reading a book right now by uh, Sam Chan, you may know him, on, on evangelism right now, and it's seriously kicking my tail in a, in a really good way. And I found myself more confident, less stressed out, more passionate about living my faith out loud. And if you don't have regular habits where you find yourself remaining in Jesus and by remaining becoming fruitful, what do you need to change so that you are set apart rather than swept away? I never got to read that letter from my grandma, and I imagine it told me who I was and where I was heading. But because my grandma loved Jesus so intensely, I bet it would have sounded a lot like Jesus sounded like. I may never know what words my grandma said to me about who I was and where I was heading, but even though I don't have that letter, I haven't been left alone. I haven't been left in the dark, because my grandma would have pointed me to this letter, that's been entrusted to countless generations of Christians. It hasn't been lost or mishandled along the way. And it informs not just me, but all of us, who we are and where we are heading. If that's the case, shouldn't that knowledge, this letter, change who we are and what we're doing? How will it change you?